1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we enter now the next of the letters of Paul that we have been studying through as we continue through the Bible together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of to come. Father, your word just is marvelous to me. And I'm so excited to be here now in this letter and to be studying and reading this together, reading it as as if, Father, we were receiving it for the first time from the Apostle. As if we were gathered there in Thessalonica and reading and studying and hearing from Paul and experiencing, perhaps, Father, what was going on in the time. I pray that we would have a sense of that. I pray, Lord, that the words of this letter would be more than words on a page, but would truly be embedded in our lives and in our spirits, that your Holy Spirit would teach and and lead us and and guide us, Father, that in the moment-to-moment of our lives for the next few weeks as we read these things together, those moments would be changed, would be affected and altered by what we hear and by what you are doing and saying to this fellowship. And we just seek this blessing, Lord. I know we always ask for more than than we can imagine because we know you give more than we can ask or imagine. And so we ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Taught 1 Thessalonians the last time uh, about 15 years ago. And it was... I'm getting ahead of myself already. It was part of the run-up for me to Revelation. It was a letter that ignited things in me I didn't expect, didn't see coming. I hope it does the same for you if it hasn't already. But this is a marvelous letter. This and and 2 Thessalonians and Paul writing to the church there in Thessalonica in Greek Macedonia. And I'm excited to share these things. I want to begin this morning by asking you to think back a bit and and ask yourselves, what do these things have in common? What do these things have in common? The Hale-Bopp Comet making its blazing visual journey across the galaxy. Star Trek creator Gene Rodenberry's ashes being launched into space where no man's ashes had gone before. (laughs) 
The Mars Pathfinder landing on the surface of Mars. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and The Return of the Jedi special editions released into theaters. The Phoenix Lights, UFOs of a sort appearing over Arizona, seen by hundreds of people, actually millions on TV, still debated what really happened there today. And 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committing mass suicide wearing black and white Nikes to be evacuated to a spaceship following the comet Hale-Bopp. Among them, interestingly, a little bit of trivia for you, Nichelle Nichols, who was Star Trek's Lieutenant Uhura, her brother Thomas Nichols was among the 39 who committed suicide. What do all these events have in common? Well, you might see some familiarity. They're all about heading to the stars in one way or another. But more importantly, they all took place in 1997. 20 years ago. Now, if you're in your 20s or you're younger, that's most or all of your life. But for me, I can't believe that that much time has gone by. I mean, it is a blip on the screen. It's a twinkle in the eye, you might say. It blazed by. And I mention these because when Paul sent off this letter to Thessalonica, to this fledgling church there, it had been less than 20 years since Jesus began his public ministry. Less than 20 years, 18 really, since he died, resurrected, was caught up, and ascended into heaven. Such a short amount of time had gone by, and already we're reading words written about Jesus and about really what all happened there. In this earliest of all of Paul's letters, this is the first that we have record of. The oldest letter of Paul in the New Testament, written approximately 50 A.D. Keep that in mind. What's exciting to me about this is that these letters, written first by Paul, of all the letters that we have retained, that God has maintained for us over all these centuries. This letter, these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, also look further forward than any of the letters of Paul. In other words, they are prophecy-packed. If you enjoy Bible prophecy, if you enjoy talking about the things to come, the end times as it were, that we are at the end of, you will be fascinated by these couple of letters. Because they take us forward in a very fast uh, fashion. You could call them, and they were this for me, the Cape Canaveral of the book of Revelation. I was—I told you I was studying, I was teaching a Bible study prior to the bridge, a couple of years prior or so. And the group that I was teaching with, and we were meeting every Sunday night, and we were just going through books. You know, pick a book and let's go through it. And, and we had done Hebrews, and I think we had done something else, I'm not sure. And, and people said, can't you teach on prophecy? And I'm like, I know nothing of prophecy. But I thought, well, I'll wade into it. You know, I was like the priest going into the Jordan River. I'll just get my ankles wet and see what happens, right? We did Daniel, because I knew some of the history. I didn't know the prophecy. By the time we got halfway through Daniel, I was having my mind just blown. And after that, I was trying to put them off because they kept saying, let's do Revelation, let's do Revelation. Well, as a pastor, I had been well taught that you don't teach Revelation. <laughs> right? That's, it's in the Bible, but it is not to be read. Because there's no way you could possibly understand it. You know, I bought into that. I thought, okay, you know, I was... I was pro-millennial, you know, just pro-whatever God's going to do, let him do it, you know. 
But don't study it. <laughs> and they kept saying, Revelation, Revelation. I mean, I have bad dreams about people saying, Revelation. So I thought, well, let's do First and Second Thessalonians. That'll be safe. <laughs> These two letters work like rocket fuel in my heart. By the time we were done with Second Thessalonians, I could not wait to get to Revelation. You're going to have to wait. But actually, we may be about a year out, by my estimation, before we hit the book of Revelation. So this time next year, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise, we'll be in that book. But here we find Paul absolutely lit up about the second coming of Christ. He refers to it again and again. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming. Look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2. Verse 19, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is not even you. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? If you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 13, that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 016. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the theme? 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all about the coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians is more about the coming whereas 2 Thessalonians is, is comforting the people who were afraid that perhaps He had already come. And Paul corrects them in their understanding. But these are marvelous letters. In both letters, throughout these letters we're going into, Paul covers the rapture of the church and the apostasy. The rise and the fall of Antichrist are talked about here. The day of the Lord, the tribulation, the abomination of desolation. If you're not sure what those are, and I'm sure most of you are, but if you're not, we will find out in these letters. And through it all, the promised return of Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes this early letter, there is an inherent call here for two primary things regarding the coming of Jesus. Number one, perseverance. And number two, expectation. Brothers and sisters, here in 2017, that is how we are called to live. Just as in the first century, with perseverance, Gary and Eileen, and with expectation... We are not to be dragged back into the doldrums of life assuming things will continue on. When I say things like we may not even be here to study Revelation in a year, I really feel that way. People hear me say that and something that's a little nutty or maybe just some kind of pastoral persuasion. You just want us to think this way so you say these things. No, I say it all the time. Ask my wife and kids. To the point that it's unnerved them from time to time. Dad, do you really think... It could only be a week, and I'm always answering, I hope it's not. I hope it's an hour. 
Are you living with expectation for the coming of Jesus? Come on, I'm not ready. Get ready! Truly, it is that simple to live a life that is expectant, that is ready, that if He came this afternoon, if we didn't get to have the ice cream social, big deal! We're home! We're with Jesus. To live with expectancy is to live with joy and motivation to be moved in our spiritual lives like nothing else. And I have not found another thing in my 52 years of living. I haven't found another thing that has motivated me more to serve Jesus than the expectancy that He may be here tomorrow or tonight or before we're done today. Expectancy and perseverance. Man, if things are going wrong, okay. As we talked about in our study through Philippians, there's joy even in the sorrow. Joy in the hardships. Joy in the difficulty. Man, we are persevering. These things mark a life lived for Jesus. Do they mark yours? Perseverance. Expectation. Are you living your life, as Paul wrote in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? Many are not. In fact, until Paul brought this letter, wrote this letter, sent it off to Thessalonica there in Greece, it is safe to say the people of that thriving metropolis were not. They were not living with any sort of expectation. As a matter of fact, in Paul's day, there was an inscription on a Thessalonian tomb which read as follows, After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. What a way to live. After death, no reviving. How sorrowful. After the grave, no meeting again. How depressing to think that it's over when it's over. That this is it. It's all you got. So sorry. I mean, to me, I, I, I think if I had to live that way, I would go insane. How wrong a thought is that? I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, tears, tears are permitted to us, but they must glisten in the light of faith and hope. Jesus wept, but Jesus never repined. That is to be fretful or low-spirited through discontent. No, he says, we too may weep, but not as those who are without hope. Nor yet as though forgetful that there is greater cause for joy than for sorrow in the departure of our brethren. Yes, we weep at loss, but we weep rejoicing knowing where they are and where we are going. You see, we have expectancy and we persevere until we go home as well. And so that's why after describing the blessed hope in this letter, Paul writes, after describing the rapture of the church... In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You're not afraid to talk about what happens after we die, should we die. No, we talk about what's called the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church, our, our salvation to be with Jesus. We talk about it because it's so comforting. Because it brings along so much assurance. But, but with that, this idea of the rapture, which we will get into. We'll, we'll look at that very in-depth when we get to chapter 4. 
It's a passage I've quoted hundreds of times, if not more. But when we get there, we'll talk about all the ins and outs and what does it mean, but, but simply that the rapture is the church being caught up, that believers in Jesus being caught up in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, to be with Jesus, to meet Him in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. That's the rapture. Talking about that not only is intended to comfort us, but it is also to bring an urgency with that hope. A sense that because it is so momentous and so instantaneous and can happen at any time, that it affects the way we live. Jesus taught that the day will come when Matthew 24 verse 40 says, there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. And I am absolutely convinced, I'll show you why when we get to chapter 4, that when Jesus says one will be taken, one will be left, He is talking about the rapture. The catching up of those who believe in Him, trust in Him. Right? That's just so supernatural. We serve a supernatural God who does supernatural things. And that glorious supernatural moment that will happen so quickly, we won't even know what had happened until we're just looking at Jesus. (laughs) That's no surprise to me that He can do something like that. Will we even be in this mortal state 20 years from now? I'll tell you, I'm surprised that this church has been here 13 years. Because when we started the Bridge Fellowship, I had recently taught First and Second Thessalonians and Daniel and Revelation, and I was good to go. I was ready to leave. I'm like, okay, Lord, we'll do this church thing for a little while. When we moved from the living room into the barn, I thought, wow, that took some time. I'm surprised we're still here. And then after 11 years in that wonderful, glorious barn... I thought, wow, okay, Lord, well, we'll build a building, but we're never going to inhabit it. And now we're here, and you're probably saying, yeah, see, that's, that's why I have trouble with this whole thing, is life just kind of keeps rolling on. Be on the alert. Be ready. There is only one reason we are still here today, my friends, and that is because God is patient for all to be saved. He wants everybody to come to repentance. There may be someone who walks in the doors this morning who doesn't know the Lord. Maybe that's you. He wants you to be ready when He comes. Well, Paul came down to Thessalonica. He arrived there straight from Philippi. And we just studied his letter to the people there in Philippi. It was from Philippi. Remember, he crossed the Aegean Sea, came into Europe, busted into Europe because the Lord kept blocking him in Asia. Why? Because the Lord had better plans in Europe. When the Lord blocks you, it's because He's got better plans somewhere else. So the Lord brought Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke across to Philippi. They leave Luke in Philippi. They now come down directly to Thessalonica. And at that time, it was a thriving city. In fact, it was boasting a population of about 200,000 people. Which in Greek Macedonia of the time, that was a huge metropolis. 200,000, and it's one of few cities in Europe visited by Paul that still thrives today. Thessalonica in 2017 has a population of 310,560 people. Now, this region was originally called Therma, boasting a lot of thermal hot springs in the area. Kind of a resort town, I guess you could think of it. 
In 316 B.C., for you historian buffs, Cassander, who was one of uh, the four kings who divided up Alexander the Great's empire, Cassander came and he took control of all of Macedonia, which would include Philippi up in the north and Thessalonica down in the south. Again, Therma at the time. And he made it his home base. And he renamed Therma Thessaloniki after his wife, who is the half-sister of Alexander the Great. All very important things to know. (laughs) It's also called uh, Salonika, or Salonika, which uh, is more of a colloquial Greek. But today, Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, is still its name. Paul came here on his second missionary journey, circa 49 A.D., And he was fresh off that joyful jailing in Philippi. And in fact, let's go back and look at at Paul's arrival there. If you've got your Bibles open, turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Here's the story behind the letter, which will be written shortly after this story takes place, and you will see why. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Now that to me is remarkable, because Paul was teaching something that had never been heard. See, when we go somewhere and we talk about Jesus today, and we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection, we're talking about something that's been on the map for 2,000 years, has been talked about, has been studied, has been shared, has been preached all over the place. And yet we sometimes get a little nervous to bring it up. Have you ever heard of Jesus? What did you say? Oh, nothing. You know, if you, if you heard me say Jesus, then I would have to follow through. But if you didn't, then I'm, you know. And we're, this death, burial, and resurrection, I'm actually going to try and convince someone that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, do you believe it? I mean, if you believe it, why is it difficult to share? Paul comes in talking to people as he goes, going into Jewish synagogues to talk about Mashiach, Yeshua. This, this Messiah has come. He's come. He's been among us. And, and they killed him. But he rose from the dead. This is Paul's message. And he was consistent with it. And he continued to talk about it. And in verse 4 it says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Why more Greeks than Jews believing? Because sometimes religion takes some time to get out of our way. Sometimes you have to unhook from those traditions or those legalistic things that we've been taught that we think are so much a part of the deal to come to and know and believe in Jesus. And then it says in verse 5, But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, that is Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. Literally, these men have turned the world upside down. I love that. 
And Jason, they say, has welcomed him, and, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge, that is a bond, like a bail bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and that is the sum total of Paul's visit to Thessalonica. That precedes this letter that we're about to write. Three Shabbats in the synagogue. Was he really only there three weeks? I mean, three weeks? How long do you have to be somewhere to start a church? Three Sabbaths. Some say it was three Sabbaths. I actually think it was probably a little bit longer. The evidence leans toward more than simply three weeks. I mean, if you go on the outside of three Sabbaths, you could say five weeks. It became after one Sabbath, the state Sabbath, and then another Sabbath, and then another one, and then stayed a week. So the five weeks, I think it was maybe more like two or three months. We don't know for sure. We can't know for sure. But we did read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul said, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He was only there three weeks. How long would it take to get a gift from Philippi down to Thessalonica twice? It's possible, but probably again more than just three weeks. He also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. So it's, it's implied that Paul actually set up shop, that maybe he was doing some tent making at the same time during the day that he was teaching during the evenings. Which would imply if you're going to start a business, you need a little bit of time, right? Paul was there at least long enough to establish or to receive support from Philippi and to establish his own self-support. Three Sabbaths, I think, specifically refers to the amount of time that he spent in the synagogues before he was no longer welcome there. Three synagogue teaching times, but probably not his entire stay, which, as I said, was more like, I would guess, two to three months And then he and Sylvanus, Silas, are run out of town. You might ask the question in reading this, and people have, how in such a short amount of time, be it three weeks or three months, how in the world did Paul establish a church of 100% newbies? How did he gather a core of elders in that time, lay hands on them and, and, and put them in charge? How did he ever teach to this level of eschatology? Because the things written in First and Second Thessalonians, you read them and you would think, well, that's mature believer stuff. That is not what you teach infant believers, I would disagree. But some would say, how, how did he do this? Well, the answer is clear back in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We are involved in a supernatural thing. Based on the natural, there are so many things that would never take place. But when God takes control, when we put our faith in Jesus and get out of the way, it's amazing how quickly He can move. And then it's also amazing how in other times He moves very, very slowly. But it's up to Him. Do you all realize that from conception to birth, the Bridge Christian Fellowship began in one month with three elders 
One month. And there were people who did not believe that. September 2nd, 2003 was when I heard. October the 8th of 2003, okay, so it was more than one month, technically it was one month and and six days. October the 8th, we had our first Bible study in the living room at the Gilmore's. One month. And because of that, and and I, I, all you can do is take my word on this, please do, that before September 2nd, I had absolutely no intention of staying in Washington and planning a church. That was the furthest thing from my mind. But when we started the bridge, there were people who said, you must have been planning this for a year or two. No. How is that possible? We serve a supernatural God who moves, when He's ready to move, moves like that. And that's the thing. You may wait a lifetime. I did. I waited a lifetime to see God do what He's done here. And you may wait and wait and wait and say, where are you, Lord? And when are you going to move? And when do I get to be one of those people who's involved in something that can't happen unless you're doing it? How long, oh Lord? And then the Lord goes, just a little longer. And you wait and all of a sudden, He moves. Kind of like the rapture of the church. You see, we wait and we wait and we wait and it happens in the twinkling of an eye. He's not going to rapture us over a decade. Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, it's my turn. I'll see you guys later. (laughs) Man, when the Spirit moves, fish are cut bait. When God's ready to move, just move with Him. And until He's ready to move, be patient with Him. He has got your vested interest in mind. By the way, the Holy Spirit has a vested interest in prophecy. Because it comes from the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives Bible prophecy, gave Bible prophecy in the first place. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 said, The Hebrew prophets were all seeking to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. One of my favorite verses, because what Peter tells us is the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus came from Jesus. How does that work? We serve a supernatural God. You must, listen, you must get to the point of believing in the supernatural or you will never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because He is Spirit. He is supernatural, beyond the natural. He created the natural. But the prophecies of Jesus that he, he fulfilled in His first coming, man, listen, nearly a third of the Bible is prophecy. And about half of that was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, literally. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born at a time of, uh, of great weeping and sorrow. Amazing things that were talked about for thousands of years prior to Jesus coming. And then He came and fulfilled all that said would happen in His first coming. The rest, that is all Bible prophecy of the second coming of Christ, must be fulfilled literally. And will be. How do you know? Because the Spirit has told us. Because Jesus has already made it clear. 
And I will add to that, as I said, that the teaching of the sure and imminent return of Jesus, that is what we call eschatology, the study of the end times, book of Revelation, first and second book, Thessalonians. My friends, this is discipleship 101. This is not the stuff that's to be left off to some pontificating scholars somewhere. In fact, what's interesting is a lot of theologians and seminarians don't even believe in eschatology. Don't even believe in the second coming of Jesus, or they may believe in it, but they don't believe in the rapture of the church and what the Bible teaches about all these things. Well, within months of escaping Thessalonica, Paul himself became very alarmed by what he heard was going on there. Oh, not bad things in the church, but great opposition and persecution against this fledgling group of believers just within months. In fact, notice chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. <laughs> it's remarkable. Paul couldn't leave Athens, so he sent a kid... <laughs> to establish and confirm the faith of the Thessalonian believers. Verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Destined for what? Destined for opposition and persecution and affliction. We'll study that more in a bit, not today, but, but when Timothy returned with the good news, hey, they're doing well, Paul. Wow, <laughs> they are established. They're growing They're teaching, they're fellowshipping, they're doing it well. Paul then wrote this letter. That's the motivation behind it. Paul, by the time Timothy came back and met up with him, they're now in Corinth. So from Thessalonica to Berea, down to Athens, down to Corinth, and in Corinth, Paul writes back to Thessalonica. That's how quickly it all happened. A few months in Thessalonica. A few months later, he writes back to them. That's 1 Thessalonians. And then 2 Thessalonians, he will write one year after that. Alright? Paul writes this letter to comfort. He writes it to encourage. He writes it to build up this young fellowship until Jesus would come. And he never has. Paul fully expected it was imminent, the return of Jesus. I can tell you this. His return at any moment was at the center of faith in the first century church. The early Christians absolutely expected he would be there in time for lunch. He was going to show up at any time. You need to keep that in mind as we study through this letter. That the attitude of Paul, the attitude of the apostles, the attitude of the early churches was any moment, any second, Jesus will be here. They did not look down the halls of 2,000 years and think, well, boy, that's going to be a long time, so we'll just hang on for now until we die. No, they expected Him any moment. That's how they lived their lives. Now keep all of that in mind as we study this book together. Now... Tray tables up, seat backs in their right position, seat belts on, chapter 1, verse 1, and I think we'll just cover two or three chapters this morning. (laughs) Paul and Silvanus, or Silas and Timothy, or Timotheus, (laughs) to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul's typical, wonderful greeting. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers and constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Note that, all in the presence of God. That's how it all works, is that God is present. Paul was aware and reminded now his brothers, his sisters at Thessalonica that God is present. He's there. And in these first three verses we see it. There it is. The trinity of a thriving fellowship. Faith works. He says, the work of faith. And love labors. Your labor of love. And hope holds on the steadfastness of hope. Note those three things. Faith works, love labors, hope holds on. 1 Corinthians 13.13, we will hear Paul put that together. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And that would not be the first time that Paul recognized the value, the trinity, if you will, of these three things. Faith, hope, and love. First off, faith works. Faith works. It just does. This is the simplicity of our message. Faith works. In other words, faith in Jesus is the work. We've been over this for 13 years. Let me repeat myself again this morning. Faith in Jesus is the work. Everything that we do, we do because of faith. Faith is the work. And all of our activity flows out of that. Faith is the work. Jesus said in John 6.27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. The people had worked hard to get there that day. Having been fed by Jesus the day before... An amazing miracle of of bread and fish. And by the way, I would love to have tasted that bread. I bet it was the best. Probably buttery and just sweet and tasty. And that fish didn't taste fishy. I promise you on that day. And so to get to where Jesus was, they had to work at it. They worked hard. They went all the way around the sea to find Him. And when they finally found Him, they meet up with Him. And they're like, hey, feed us again, feed us again. They're pulling out menus. I'd like to have the the fish and loaves. Could I have? And Jesus said, don't work for that. You're going to eat that and it will be gone. Don't work for that. Work for for that which endures to eternal life. They said to him, well then what shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. Which sounds like a nice religious holy question. And Jesus says, this is the work of God. And you know every year was spent to Him. Get ready to write this down, honey. These are important things. And He said, <laughs> that you believe in Him whom He sent. Faith works. It just does. When we simply, honestly, entirely entrust ourselves to Jesus, that's when things begin to happen. That's when we begin to recognize that we're not the ones doing it. We're caught up in it. It reminds me of a, of a time when my son Hayden, was a little boy, he's probably about nine years old, and he was over at a friend's house. I think I've shared this with you, that, that they were standing beside a, a wading pool. It's one of those little, about two and a half feet high, maybe three foot high wading pools. And the other kid's father had just patched the pool recently. 
They were filling up with water. They're standing there with the hose. The thing is almost full. And all of a sudden, the patch gave way and the whole pool went... On the side that they were standing, which was on the top of a hill... And this wave of water carried Hayden and his friend down the hill about 40 feet. You know, Hayden's like, you know, I wish I had been there. Listen, faith works that way. You trust God and you get carried along. When you have faith in Jesus, you can't claim, you know, glory for anything because he's just carrying you along. Someone says, what a marvelous thing you just did. And you're like, I didn't do anything. I'm just caught up. I'm in the wave, man. I'm being pulled along. Tuesday night, our our, uh, Baja mission team gave kind of their testimony of having gone down there. And for those of you who don't know that that Mark and Christine Landis and their daughters are moving down there to set up shop and to help be a part of that mission through Strong Towers Ministry. And it was just a marvelous evening. We had it over here in the multi-purpose room. We figured, you know, maybe 20, 30 people will show up and the room was packed. It's like 100 people jammed into that little room. Why didn't you just move in here? Well, because that would have been moving tables and we would know. So we're all packed in there, and they're sharing the testimony of what took place. And after the fact, I went up and I talked to Adam Steve. Which I think how cool it is to have two first names. <laughs> and, and, and so Adam and I are, are talking for a few minutes and getting to know each other a little bit better. And I'm talking about Strong Tower Ministries. Found out that Strong Tower is based in Mission Viejo, California, where I grew up. Which is really, I think, kind of ironic. And as, as we're talking... He was describing his whole experience. He said, you know, it's just, I got to a point in my Christian life where I said, Lord, there's got to be something more than me just going to church. And he said, I never thought I would be involved in Mexico. But he said, when I said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, he said, doors flew open. Things just started happening. I said, now this is what I do. He's in the Navy Reserves. He's up here flying. And then he's down there driving people in and out of Mexico. He's got this big van they call the Millennium Falcon. Which I think is great. And so that's what he's doing. But his explanation was not, yeah, we, we strategized and we thought this through and we planned it out, we worked it out. And I said, this I can do for the Lord. No, he said, I just believed that God would do something. And he did. Faith works. It's how it happens. Cheryl and I were driving home on Tuesday night, and we both had the same thought. It was interesting. I just said to her as we were driving, knowing what I was thinking, I said, what did you think about tonight? And she said, she said, I thought back 13 years. And she said, I'm just amazed at what God does. And I have been thinking the same exact thing. That, that, that when we were meeting in the living room, there was no idea that we would have a map of missions around the world that we would be involved in and engaged in. No idea we'd be sending Mark and Christine Landis down to, to, to go to this mission and be involved in this. I thought we'd be sending young people. Right, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll clip that out. No, no idea what was actually going to take place. You know what I thought? My thought exactly was, all we did was say yes. When people look at the work of the Bridge Fellowship, there's not a single person here who can claim any of it. All we can claim is the work of faith. 
We believed him. He said he'd do it. So we said, okay, we're going to take you at your word. And off we go. This is not tooting anyone's horn because there's no horn to toot. In fact, the only horn to toot is the trumpet of God. We'll get to that. So we didn't lay in strategies. We didn't contact ministries. We didn't seek out publicity as a church. No, faith works. Secondly, love labors. Paul says, we noted this. And we bear in mind your labor of love. I love that phrase, the labor of love, because when you love, it's no burden. When you love, there is no strain. I think about Jacob. Genesis 29, verse 20 tells us, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Seven years, man. And he gets Leah. It's just what the Bible says. Wakes up the morning after the honeymoon night and he's staring into old weak eyes. What's this? Goes back to Laban. No, I wanted the other one. Well, I had to marry her off first. She's like, ah, oy vey. That's where that, that began. That would be oy vey. Was that morning. I'm sure of it. And, and then seven more years he works for Rachel. So 14 years really in all. Why? Because he loved her. It wasn't hard. It was love. It wasn't labor. Love labors. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me oh, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Please understand, it's not that we keep His Word to prove our love, it's we love Him, and so naturally we just keep His Word. Faith works, and love labors, and hope holds on. Hope holds on. Paul calls this the steadfastness of hope. That word steadfast, I love it in the Greek, hupomone. Which is literally patient endurance. This is the perseverance part of the expectation. Hope holds on. It waits patiently. It endures. It knows that you will be on board. The comedian Brian Regan. One of my favorites. He talked about... uh, the gate agents at airports. He said, I feel bad for them, the gate agents at airports. They, they, they try to get the boarding process to run smoothly, but no one will listen to them. He goes, Play. ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin boarding. If we could ask for your cooperation, please stay seated until your row has been called. But he says, somehow, by the time it comes out of the speaker, it sounds more like, everybody up and rush the door. Everyone, immediately try to squish your bodies and carry-ons simultaneously through the small gate door area. Hurry, push and shove, everyone, push and shove, immediately. Do whatever you have to do to get on board. This is the last helicopter out of Vietnam! (laughs) Isn't that true? And I love waiting for planes with my wife because she likes to just sit there. Everybody lines up. They're all back down SeaTac, you know. And we're sitting there and I'm like, don't you want to get in line? She's like, why? Because I want to be on board. Yeah, but we have our tickets. We have our seat assignments. Yeah, but I want to be the first one on. Why? Patient endurance. 
There is something in us that wants it now and we want it quickly and we want to be the first. I want to be the one handing the ticket to the agent. Yeah, I'm on before all these other losers. <laughs> and you get down there and you get on your seat and then you have to sit there while everybody's climbing on board. Steadfastness of hope. Patient endurance. Because, see, we know our seat is secure. Our reservation is being held. It is anchored to Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, tells us, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things that absolutely guarantee that everything that we are studying and reading in here will happen. Two things. What are they? God's nature and God's promise. His word and himself, if that's easier for you. He said, I swear by myself. We'll swear. People will say, I swear to God. I don't like when they say that because they don't mean it. Jesus said, don't swear by heaven or earth or any of that stuff. You you don't just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But people will swear by something greater than themselves. And Jesus said, it was swear by the temple. God says, you know what I did? I swore on myself that I'm going to do everything I said I'm going to do. And the Hebrew writer continues and says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Hope holds on to the promise that Jesus Himself went before you. Now think about this. If, in fact, Jesus died, which He did, and resurrected, which He did, and ascended back to the heavens, which He did, what do you think He's going to do next? Stay there? His entire experience, life, existence on earth would be a complete waste of eternity if He just stayed there. Our hope is that He entered there. He went within the veil. He crossed the bounds of death. And He is coming back for you, for me. That's the blessed hope. That's the anchor. The steadfastness of our hope. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Hold on to hope. Because hope holds on. It's so simple. Faith works. Love labors. Hope holds on. Verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Jesus said, you did not choose me, John 15, 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Whoa, that's not fair. Some are chosen, implying some are not. What if I'm not one of the chosen? You know what I'm going to say. If you want to know God's choice right now, 
Choose Him. And you will have been chosen. That's how it works. You do have a choice. You do have a say in this, but God happens to know what your choice, what your say is. So it's, it's both that He has chosen you and you choose Him. I, I get so tired of the argument back and forth. Is it election or is it free will? Yes! It is. It is both. I chose Him with everything within me. This was my free choice. But He knew I was going to do it. So He chose me and I chose Him. It's intimate. It's beautiful. Verse 5. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Again, reminder, this is a supernatural God thing. It is the Holy Spirit thing. It is not something that you can reason out unless you are willing to reason with God. Who said, Isaiah 1.18, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That to the non-believer. But to the believer, listen. Of all the things the Holy Spirit does, of all the power that He offers and pours out and gives supernaturally to those who believe, Witnessing is at the top of the list. Sharing Jesus is A number one with the Spirit of God for why He gives the power of God. Why He gives us the faith and the hope and the love. Why He brings the full conviction. Why He gives the power. You will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses. Verse 5 continuing. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What kind of men were Paul and Silvanus and Timothy? Witnesses. Very simply. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is present in the church? There's joy there. If there's not joy, the Spirit is not present. It's an easy way to measure this. There are different measures we've, we've seen over the years. One of the other measures is where Jesus is praised and glorified, the Spirit is there. If Jesus is not honored, if Jesus is not named, I question whether the Spirit is really present at all. Because the Spirit glorifies the Son. But the Spirit brings joy. That should be present in every fellowship where the Holy Spirit is at work and among the people there should be joy. There should be laughter. There should be encouragement and comfort. That's what the Spirit does. Even where there's suffering, there's joy. Even where where there's hardship, there's gladness. James said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the joy of the Spirit. Verse 7 So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, that's up in the north, and in Achaia, that's in the south, that's north and south Greece. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul is declaring that from Corinth to Philippi to Berea, the buzz coming out of Thessalonica was that these people sound like trumpets of God. 
These people are resounding in their faith. We hear about them everywhere we go. Paul says we don't even have to make mention of you because others are bringing you up to us. Did you hear about what's going on at Thessalonica? Did you hear about that church? hear about what they're up to? Paul is declaring we hear about you everywhere we go because their faith worked and their love labored and their hope was holding on. And I read that and I look at that and I think, are we, is the Bridge Fellowship of Thessalonica, are we sounding forth? I think in many ways the Lord is sounding forth through this fellowship and I praise Him for it. I'm so excited about that. So excited that the the Baja team, they came back and, and three of them, on three separate occasions, came to me and said, Rick, you have to go to Mexico. I'm like, I've been to Mexico. You gotta go now. Okay, all right, I'll go, I'll go. Sounding forth. The word sounding forth. Because, well, because the trumpet is gonna sound. And you know what? I wanna be in tune. I want to be part of that orchestra. Now watch this. Paul now puts it all together. In verse 9 he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. In other words, faith works. Faith. Action follows faith. Faith turns counterfeit paganism into Christ-centered passion. Because remember, the bulk of the Thessalonian church were pagans. They were God-fearing Greeks. They, they were not Jewish people. They didn't have the background. They didn't have the religion. They didn't have the history. And so, so many came out of idol worship and right into true Christ-centered worship. Well, that's how faith works. And Paul says, to serve a living and true God, that's love-laboring. The labor of love. Why would you serve the true and living God? Because that's what love does. Let me ask you Christians, is it a labor to follow Jesus? No, it's love. It's just love. And verse 10 finally, and to wait for His Son from heaven. Why? Because hope holds on. Hope holds on. Hope will wait. Whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Faith works, love labors, hope holds on. Now, listen, one last thing this morning. Verse 10 is for me the substance of the whole letter. It is a letter about the coming of Christ. The expected, imminent, immediate, instant coming of Jesus. Paul assumed this. It's how he lived his life. We see that throughout our study of Acts. We see that in all the letters of Paul. He just lived knowing that any moment could be the last that Jesus was going to come. And it affected everything that he did. And for me, that is the deal, the thrust of this letter. The key verse, if you will, is 1 Thessalonians 1.10. To wait for His Son from heaven. It's the prime directive. It is the main motivator of all we do with the time that we have left. And that is what? That is we wait. And the word wait, anamenyo in the Greek, is expectant waiting. It's waiting 
knowing something is about to, you're waiting for something that you absolutely know with certainty is going to happen. How do we wait expectantly or, or why do we? We do so because God raised Jesus from the dead. So as I said before, we can be sure that he'll be back. He will be back. And, and because verse 10 tells us he rescues us from the wrath to come, we can look forward to our end. And this is important. If I knew that the next thing on God's prophetic calendar was the tribulation, would I be looking forward to it? People have asked me many times, Rick, why do you believe and teach a pre-tribulation rapture? Why does that even matter? What does it even mean? Let's get our bearings straight. We will see why in these letters it matters. We understand that it was clearly the belief, this pre-tribulation rapture was the very simple, clear, literal belief of the apostles of the early church. There are some who come along and say, yeah, but, but the majority of the church age, the majority of the last 2,000 years, that's really not what the church taught. And you know you're right, from about 300 and 312 A.D. all the way up to the mid-1800s, a lot of the church dismissed the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. You have to go back earlier than 300 to see it. And then after 1800, you see it cropping up, rising up again. I find that fascinating because it was the end of the 1800s that Israel began to stir to go back into the land. It was at the end of the 1800s that things prophetically began happening in a way they hadn't for centuries on this planet. And pre-300, you get back into it, you get to the writings of men like Irenaeus, who talked about and taught a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, and he lived at about 100 to 150 A.D., But go back further than that. I don't really care what the church age tells me. I care what Jesus tells me. I care what the apostles tell me. I care what God's Word says. And God's Word very clearly teaches a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Meaning what? Meaning, very simply, the Bible is clear. God is going to pour out His wrath on this world. There is no question about that, that there will be a coming judgment. There must be. Don't you want there to be? Do you want all the child molesters just to get off scot-free? Do you want all the sin and the evil and the murder and the anger and the vitriol and the wickedness in this world? Do you want that just to be like, ah, it's cool, it's good, come on in. Do you want to have breakfast with Hitler? God's wrath will be poured out on a rebellious Christ-rejecting, lawless, sinful world. And tragically, Jesus foretold, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And we're watching it take place in our culture like never before. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 tells us, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, which, (laughs) by the way, you have this morning, there no longer remains... A sacrifice for sin. You walk out that door knowing Jesus died for you, loves you, and wants to redeem your life. And ignore that? There's no other sacrifice for you. There's no other hope for you. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen, a pre-tribulation rapture simply means that Jesus will remove his followers before that judgment happens. 
Before how much of that judgment? Before all of that judgment. Not halfway through that judgment. Not at the end of that judgment. Pre-judgment. Pre-tribulation. And Paul says it, I don't know how you can say it any more clearly, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He'll say it again in chapter 5, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, that is alive, or asleep, which is a euphemism for death, we will live together with Him. Faith works, love labors, hope holds on, because our rescue is assured. Jesus promised I'm going to take you out before all this takes place. Absolutely. How can I be sure? Just listen to Jesus' words. Luke 21, verse 34. Be on guard, so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That's the rapture. That's the promise. That Jesus Himself may, again Paul explains it in detail in chapter 4, will come to it in two to three weeks if Jesus hasn't already come for us. And if I get a little revved up in this letter, I don't apologize. I told you it was rocket fuel, man. I just, this, this is, I've waited for this moment for 13 years, to be honest. As I've waited for the moment of our being called home. Gene Rodenberry tried to do it by ashes. George Lucas, by cinematic storytelling. NASA and the Mars Pathfinder, by science. And even the Heaven's Gate cult tried to do it by vodka phenobarbital cocktails. And it killed them all. And people in this world, everyone, try to find a way to get out beyond themselves, to even to get out to the starry heavens. They all tried to do these things. That was 20 years ago. Look into the stars. But who's got time to look at the stars today? We've got so much going on in our lives, so much happening, so many other things to occupy ourselves. Who's got time to be looking for and awaiting the blessed hope? Paul did. That's how he spent his life. The Thessalonians, they did. The church of the New Testament, all were waiting for the Son to come and bring them home. All were looking to the heavens. That's not sci-fi fantasy. It is the promise of Jesus Christ. How about you? Why don't you take a little spiritual inventory of your life this morning and ask yourself, is faith working? Is love laboring? Is hope holding on? Am I expectant? Am I persevering? Am I waiting for the sun? Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation.
Let's pray together. Lord, Your Word is marvelously stirring. I pray it will stir our hearts now. And Lord, I pray for new conviction and a fresh anointing of Your Holy Spirit to awaken us today. Awake to the very true reality of Your coming, Jesus. That it could be at any time. Awake to the needs around us, alert and aware and sober and speaking the Word, trumpeting forth the Word of God before the trumpet sounds. Lord, alive and invigorated by the truth. May we be such a people. I pray for this motivation that can only come by Your Holy Spirit. It can't come through through teaching. It can't come through uh, encouragement. It comes by Your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, pour out on us yet again to invigorate our fellowship, each and every one, in our lives, in our conversations, in our interactions, to speak Jesus, to be used of Jesus, to be empowered to tell the truth. And Father, to be an expectant and persevering people, joyful in all circumstance. Tears glistening with the hope that You've given us. And Father, I pray for anyone who has never made a commitment to Jesus. For those who may have just kind of kept Jesus at arm's length, surveying, considering perhaps, but but never taking hold of faith. I pray this morning faith would come. We seek the blessing of Your Spirit in this place, in and among us. Even now, Lord, as we worship You in Jesus' name, Amen. Please come. If you have any need, if you think that this afternoon Jesus could arrive, what would you want to be doing right now? What would you want to be saying to Him right now? If there's anything unsaid, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never been baptized, then let's not put off what God has called us to do. I invite you while we worship during this next song just to come. There will be people you know at the four tables. Any corner of the room. Come and be prayed for. Seek the Lord this morning. Let's stand together.